discussion of Hitchhiker's Guide to Scottish Literature. I'm Vicky Riley. I'm Christian Kerr. And on this very fine fireworks night evening, we are bringing to you our conversation on the classic writer John Buchan. Um, we will be looking at his novel, his last novel, Sick Heart River, and we will also be talking later on to our author Robert J. Harris, who has been influenced by Sick Heart River in bringing us a brand new Richard Hanny thriller called The 31 Kings, which sees Hanny um, reunited with all his buddies from all the, the Bucking books to go and fight the dastardly Nazis. And it seems obvious to us now that Richard Hanny would be a character that was ripe for that kind of reimagining treatment. So we are heartily thrilled to have Robert J. Harris doing that for us. But before we get to Robert J. Harris, we will talk about the real John Buchan. <laughs> Absolutely. So John Buchan was born in Perth in 1875. He was the son of a free church minister and the, and the daughter of a hill farmer from Broughton in the Scottish borders. So quite a humble beginning. Absolutely. And his life follows some really interesting patterns, Mm. I think, that um, are not not unique um, in terms of... uh, Scots unique. Exactly. (laughs) So he grew up in Kirkcaldy. He was educated at Hutchison's Grammar School in Glasgow. He went on to Glasgow University and then won a scholarship to Oxford, which pretty much sort of located the rest of his life Mm. in England. Yeah. In the southeast. While a student, he published three historical novels, he edited collections of poetry and contributed stories to Periodical Magazine. His career follows a pretty establishment imperial pattern, mm. um, though it's fascinating to see how he dotted around across like, that establishment um, and somehow always found time to continue writing. Yeah, he, he churned them out, didn't he? he yeah, and it's... Fair- it's really hard to sort of divide his works into genres yeah. and you know artists might have the bl- his blue period <laughs> <laughs> Buckin seems to have went from one to the other and back again and all over the place history and fiction yeah. and journalism and he just, absolutely I think he everything. just follows his own creative impulse the whole time yeah he was called to the bar but he almost immediately went to South Africa which is a very important location in a number of his novels as secretary to the High Commissioner there. When he returned to Britain, he became editor of The Spectator. In 1907, he married Susan Charlotte Grosvenor, a cousin of the Duke of Westminster, which sounds like a canny move. Yeah. Uh, with the outbreak of World War One, he joined the War Propaganda Bureau, subsequently enlisted, and was in the Intelligence Corps as Haig's speechwriter. And finally, he became Director of Information in 1917. Throughout the war while he was serving he wrote novels and these wartime novels included the 39 steps his most famous work which yeah. was published serially in 1915 green metal in 1916 and mr stanfast in 1918 so the you know the heart of the the hanny mysteries were were done during the war which i think is quite interesting because hanny certainly seems like that heroic character that the country probably needed at the time. One that was unafraid, certain of his duties, and did it unstintingly. Yes, absolutely. And um, it's really interesting that he worked in propaganda (laughs) and that, um, you know, he was... I guess he wrote his way through the war anyway. Mm. Um, And I think that uh, one of the things that was was sort of difficult for him was, as a journalist, to also work... For 
the government. Yeah. That he would have sometimes liked to have assumed a more critical. So then after the war, it seems that he turned more fully to, to writing fiction and history. But then he also, you know, really um, went ahead with the politics and he became a Unionist Party MP um, in 1927 for the Scottish Universities. In 1935, he was appointed Governor-General of Canada and elevated to a peerage, becoming first Baron of Tweedsmuir, which is a long way to come from a farm in the borders. <laughs> yes, the title reflected yeah. the area that he had spent his summer holidays in. And then in 1935... Buchan's novel, The 39 Steps, was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock. But Buchan lived and worked in Canada until his death in February 1940. And it's Canada and his um, journey into his ill health that preceded his death that form um, what the, the background behind the writing of his last novel, Sick Heart River. Yes, um, indeed. It's his final novel and... Even though it is a Ned Lethen adventure, uh, it's quite different from those novels that Buchan liked to call his usual shockers. Yeah. Um, Though it still has its fair bit of action. It absolutely does. Yeah. And it's a real page turner in the same kind of way. Yeah. In the same way as these novels, like the Hannay novels, had followed Richard Hannay through the war. It's a uh, novel whose action is set in the present. Yeah. It begins in London, with Lethan alternately staring down and avoiding his own mortality. Um, It begins kind of in the same way as Hunting Tower does, um, with him at the doctor's, Mm. um, where he's diagnosed with TB, his lungs having been damaged in a gas attack in World War I, and he's given about a year, give or take, to live. Yeah. Um, And he goes about setting his London affairs in order. And so he's sort of flitting about like a ghost in London, but then thankfully something turns up that gives him a little bit of purpose and allows him to then decide that he wants to die on his feet. That's the thing that he always says, he wants to die on his feet. But it is the American Blenkiron, who had first made his appearance in Greenmantle, uh, that sets the machine of the plot in motion. And I think it's interesting that it's Blenkiron, a character who we know struggles with illness in the same way that Lethan struggles mm. with illness, that is the person that gives him his new purpose. You know, he kind of thinks of his other friends, your Archies and your Hannies, as a little bit too uh, action-packed for him to be able to deal with in his more fragile state. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice compliment. Yes. The problem that Blenkiron brings to uh, Lethan is that a successful New York financier, husband to Clan Roden's sister-in-law, has suddenly absconded. And this final quest is to locate a man named Francis Galliard, hopefully return him to his respectable life with the minimum of fuss and notoriety. <laughs> uh, sufficiently invigorated by the challenge, Lethan sets off for New York and begins a journey that takes him first to Quebec, then tracks the missing man across Canada journeying deep into the wilderness of the Northwest Territories. He learns that Galliard has teamed up with a guide, Lou Frizzell, who is half Scottish, half Cree Indian, and Lethan deduces that the two have gone in search of a sort of legendary and mythical place, the valley of the Sickheart River. Yes, and um, so the novel is both a physical journey, taking them into the 
a similar heart of darkness. Yes. Um, but also it's a, a psychological journey and a spiritual journey towards the acceptance of his relationship to the world and with his relationship to his own mortality and his um, place among God. So, what did you make of it? Well, it's it's a beautiful book and it's an infuriating book. It was it's it's so up and down and round and round and so it was sim- it was it was at the same time fascinating and yet so, some of the some of the aspects of the storytelling just raised my hackles as a modern reader a little bit. But at the same time because it's such the the book um is such a a really human journey and a really honest journey of somebody coming to terms with their own mortality the the weaknesses of it makes me feel that it's actually a really human story a really human book his flaws are just as much of a necessary part of a spiritual awakening as you know your stoicism and your accepting of of what the fates bring you I think it's a shrewd observation to say that there's a, there's a sort of exploration going on mm. of the situation in which Lethan finds himself. Yeah, because in in previous Bucking novels, you could say that there's you know they're tightly plotted. You know that the characters are going from A to B, mm-hmm. but in Sick Heart River, it seems there's actually because it's more of an exploration, it feels like there's more than one story going on at the same time. Yes. And even Buckin changes his mind as to what the main story is. So we've got this this physical journey to find Galliard. We've got yes. this spiritual journey to for him to, you know, to reflect upon his own mortality and his time in the world. And then once we get to Canada... And we kind of find Galliard pretty quickly. Absolutely, or Galliard finds them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then all of a sudden it turns into this other, more sort of metaphysical uh, journey because then the task becomes to find Lou Frizzell, who's gone on to this journey to find this mythical valley of Sick Heart River. And then it turns again into... um, Well, the question of whether he will leave the place. Yeah, and... Lethan finds that he's now got another um, task ahead of him, which is that he finds out that the Indians in their village are really having a bad time of it in the winter, and you know they're dying a lot. And then he's get he's he's given this. He decides to take on this job to save the village, to save the Indians, and to to bring them back to life. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that that happens as the sort of quest changes is that it becomes how the landscape acts upon so many different people yeah in the same way Mm. and I think that one of the things that's strange about the novel is how Buchan is sort of inconsistent Mm. about a lot of things and Ned Lethan is inconsistent which I think makes it not so much of a flaw yeah Right, and like whether it's a deliberate inconsistency, you know, I'm not completely sure, but it's certainly an inconsistency that evolves mm. through the journey. Because a lot of it seems like what Lethan and therefore Buchan is trying to investigate is 
um, the difference between chaos and control yes. and how man can master nature and how nature ultimately masters man because, you know, you can't escape death and, right. this, and how the landscape works. It's really interesting that Buchan died when he did and wrote this when he did. You know, the, the Second World War is, you know, we're teetered on the edge of the Second yeah. World War. He's already been through a war and the old certainties of which he was very much a part of being within, you know, imperial establishment Britain are kind of fallen away. He's very clear that there's a sort of worldwide crisis mm. of purpose as yeah. well, you know. And when he talks to... The, the American passages are really interesting because there's sort of, who are you Americans? Yes. You know? yes. What, what, are we all, what are you like as people? Yeah. Um, and uh, part, of the, part of the agenda there is that in, when he's writing it in 1939 into 1940, um, he has signed the Declaration of War for Canada. He himself yeah. did that. Yeah. which is astonishing yeah. um, and of course America has not yet joined the war and doesn't then until 1941 yeah. late 1941 a long time later yeah and Galliard who is the epitome of this new New York man he's presented in the beginning as the man of the future yeah. just as America is presented as the country of the future and the, it's these two things that are going to be how the world is led after this point in war. And you get the feeling that throughout the book where Lethan and John Buchan represents the old world order, that he's kind of not quite ready to let go. And so that's why he has these arguments with himself about the kind of man that Galliard is and the kind of world that's going yes. to be once, you know, this sort of certainty British right. imperial man is no longer in it. Yeah, and one of the things that is, of course, so important and crucial about Galliard is that he's French-Canadian, mm. that he's not an American, and no. that he comes from this... Um, he, he comes from a humble background, like yes. Lethen, um, Buchan, <laughs> like sorry. Yeah. He, he, he is a mixture of races, and he's somebody that has gone to America and made a fortune. Yes. He's a self-made man. Absolutely. And he's someone who is having to come back to reconnect. Mm. I mean, one of the things that comes all the way through, sort of comes through in, I think, the Ned Lethen books mostly, is that men, it's, yeah. in Buck and it's mostly men, yeah. um, have two lives mm. and this is their privilege they have a life in town and they have a life in the country mm. and the real life is the life in the country yeah and there's a, the town is the sort of necessary civilization yeah and yeah. Sickheart River seems to be to me an extreme examination yes. of that yes uh-huh yeah because you know he kind of celebrates that Galliard's done all these things and then he knows all the supper clubs to go to and all that kind of thing but actually where real life matters is out in the wilderness finding the Sick Heart River or finding some notion of his true self, which the civilised world has somehow suppressed. When he writes about the French Canadians and what they're like, yeah. it's kind of fascinating. Well, he does that throughout the book. Yeah, You know, again, this is like sort of harking back to the old 19th century certainties. It kind of reminds me of like, you know, phrenology and all those kind of things where it's like this is what a human being is like if they 
you know, come from France, French Canada or yeah. Canada, French Canada, or if they've got certain bumps on their heads, and or if they're Indian, yeah. or if they're from America, or if they're British. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that Buchan's sort of anthropological gaze, as it mm. were, hasn't really is 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 pre-modern. Yes, even fe- though as he's tracing the the development of modernity, right? Like this book feels the changes. Yeah, uh-huh. and the characters are struggling with it. Yeah, but the vocabulary is that of the old yes yeah like you kind of feel like he's trying to get to the real psychology of humans Mm. but he can't quite get there yet because he's not got the language to yeah so he falls back on you know you know race and creed he bangs on about race creed tradition all the time which is one of the things that kind of that was the kind of things that made this book much more problematical for me just because it did feel so unsophisticated and um, when the rest of the novel really isn't. Yeah. You know, they invest the spiritual journey, the description of the landscape and all yes. that. There is so much beauty and so much deep thought and, about what it means to be human. And then when he talks about other people, it's like he just brings them back to sort of, oh, well, he's a French-Canadian, so that's why he's like that. And it feels like he's cheapening his own investigation by falling back on these 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 old ways of thinking. But in saying that, you know, this is who John Buchan was. And the very fact that he was even trying to negotiate these questions and not quite hit, getting there or hitting the mark is one of the reasons why this book is so fascinating to read as a modern reader. There are just beautiful yeah. passages about, you know, really good nature writing. Oh, yeah, really, <laughs> totally, yeah. About berries and bears and caribou, and I learned a lot about moose. <laughs> um, I really did, and the stamping, yeah. But then there's also descriptions of the mountains. Um, Ned Leithen is a mountaineer, mm. um, but... The mountains are sublime yeah. in this 18th century tradition yeah. of the sublime. There are all these ways in which Buchan is sort of using all those tools which are at his disposal to try and interrogate mm. what's what's going on and to get to the bottom of it. And I think I think you're right to say that they don't completely cohere. And I think the fact that they don't cohere is actually one of its strengths because yeah. and and I think the main strength of this novel is the spiritual quest aspect of it and the, and the coming to terms with his own mortality aspect because he really oscillates um, Edward Leithen throughout, um, mm. throughout this journey. He can go from deepest pits of despair and depression and no energy to then feeling completely lifted and free by what this journey has is providing for him and I think that's probably a lot more honest a description of the way somebody does face up to their own mortality because you probably do oscillate between this isn't fair to write I've got to you know to do to die in the best way that I can and I think that the nature writing um, aspects of it you do get a sense that this is a dying man who is absolutely taking in every detail yep. 
so that he can imprint it on his memory before he dies because that is the way that he is going to die well, to just be in the moment, be in the place that he's at and absolutely notice how the leaves are, how the grass is, how the rivers flow. And all of those things are intensely related to his own survival as well, which is, of course, interestingly, something that he shares with everyone else there. Mm. There is a sort of bare humanity thing going on and... Um, Ned Lethan has got his like own ways of interpreting things mm. but everyone else has their own too Yeah, and um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about Johnny is that Buchan says well that Lethan is finding him shadowy and he finds him shadowy this shadowy figure that's just part of the general weakness of the landscape fascinating because he's describing the landscape and his illness and Lethan's like debilitated state of mind as having the same characteristic Mm. and that Johnny is brought into focus when he realizes that his name is actually Fraser (laughs) and he says oh wait you're connected to Scotland yeah and it's like if things can things are sort of only um precise and clear Mm. if they can be related to things that you know really well he has to um explain the world to himself to feel like yeah you know, that he... Again, it goes back to the mastering of nature kind of thing, mastering the question of his, mm. his life, mastering the question of of what the journey is, is supposed to be giving him. We both had a little bit of an issue with, with how the book ended. Um, because... But it's, it's actually well known now that Sickheart River was written partly also as a piece of propaganda to um, to bolster up people for the coming war. And so the, the end storyline where Lethan goes to, um, to save the, the Indian population and when he talks in that way about how many men are going to die for the war, yeah. you get him ramping up the sort of rhetoric about sacrifice and the greater good and that this is how, you know, life wins over death yes and it's very christian yeah um, one of the things that is interesting about the the novel up until this point is that nature and the people living in nature um the indians um the half indian half you know the outdoorsman mm-hmm. um there's a sort of universality there and he seems to have been a sort of fairly low-level Presbyterian and he says you know I I found it difficult to have a relationship myself with God Mm. Um, but what is happening to him in the wilderness is deeply spiritual Mm. and I think it's fascinating but also very unfortunate that he becomes a messiah figure a white messiah yeah in the context of this Indian village yeah because you know um because also what I found when I was reading this was that it reminded me of Elizabeth Melville mm. and her spiritual journey in In Godly Dream and the, the difficulties that you've got to overcome and you yeah. just as you think you're at the promised land. You're... And Pilgrim's Progress is yeah. a book that mm-hmm. is just is all through Buchan, but yeah. in this one too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, as, so the spiritual element of it seems real and, and fine. It's the political element of it that's shoehorned in there as well that makes this book much more problematic than than it could have been what do you mean by the politics though 
just like just, uh, to be a leader yeah and great men and yeah um that it's a it's a certain kind of man that can be a great man oh yeah and just and and just the way that he spoke about the Indian people and the fact that the Indian people never have their own voice at all during this book you know mm. you know Lethan tries to understand the Frizzell brothers they get they get a say in who they are yeah. in this book the Indians never do and and that was a bit of an issue with with me especially when you're chucking around words like half breed yeah. and 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 things like that. Yes, and you know, with Sick Heart River itself, this valley, this beautiful valley, the sort of the grail that they're looking for, um, it's part of Indian legend, mm. and it's the Indians that give, have given it its name. And it, it's named Sick Heart River because an Indian chief saw it and pined for it ever after. Mm. But they also know, or there's, the legend is that it's got hot streams and sulfuric gases and that you can't live there. Mm. Like, the Indians know that it's a dead place. Yeah. But they also pine for it at the same time. And the Indians' um, relationship with the land is never really talked about either. It just it bangs on about how they're good at trapping, but and that's it, you know. But they have been there for hundreds of yeah. years previously, and so it just it just feels... That that's that just feels like a bit of a cop out that, you know, he's exploring so many things, but then when it comes to the native people of this place, they're just they're just discarded. They're just they're, yes. they're they're not given the space that everybody else is. Yeah, exactly. And as a reader, I definitely. I had this feeling of dread that yeah. this was how the novel was going to end. And I knew that Lethan was going to die. Buchan does a great job of giving him strength and taking it away and mm. giving him resolution and having him fortify himself and, you know, look forward to coming back to Britain, even mm. at one point. Yeah. And I just, I thought, please let him go to New York or please let him go to London or, you know, <laughs> do something to help but not sacrifice yeah <laughs> oh i think that one of the questions that i have about that aspect of the book is you know when he talks about how the indian how how when the when the rabbit dies there's a cycle of snow rabbit right um which underpins like the food chain mm -hmm. and when the food chain it's a seven-year cycle and when you get to the end of a seven-year cycle there's a very hard winter mm -hmm. and he describes their depression mm -hmm. um which you know is perhaps comparable but maybe not to for instance the depression that the white men yeah. feel um he and describes he, it as natural. Yeah. And yet he decides to, you know, hoof them out of it. So, so what would have happened? You know, what would have happened if there hadn't been this intervention? And is there any way in which this depression is... Not at all linked to the fact Possibly that, caused by the presence of... Of people that are incomers. changing the way yes. that their traditions and ways of yeah. living with the land have always been. Yeah. Um. And it's the same with Galliard as well, like what his depression is and all that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's hinted at, but it's never truly properly interrogated because, um, because of the way that Lethan or Buchan keep going back to these, this 19th century view of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so much of the book is about 
like home and resonance of landscape as well you know and and a connection to a landscape that may not be yours mm. right that's really interesting the the sort of man has to be nurtured by the place that they call home or that they feel at home in you know like it seems like Lethan had this moment in Quebec at um Clairefontaine mm. that's a lovely passage actually but after that it was heavy going, for there was the inevitable waterfall to surmount, and weary and panting, he came out into the ultimate meadow of the Clairefontaine, which was fixed so clearly in his recollection. It was a cup in the hills, floored not with wild hay, but with short, crisp pasture like an English down. From its sides descended the rivulets which made the Clairefontaine, and the heart of it was the pool fringed with flags, so clear that through its six-foot depth, the little stir in the sand could be seen where the water bubbled up from below. The place was so green and gracious that all sense of the wilds was lost, and it seemed like a garden in a long-settled land, a garden made centuries ago by the very good and the very wise. here today we're in the lovely home of Robert J. Harris, author of a brand new Richard Hanny mystery, The 31 Kings. So hello Robert. Hello Vicky. <laughs> hello Christian. Yes. Um, so what inspired you to to um, come to, to write a new Richard Hanny mystery? How did you get into Bucking? Was he a childhood favourite? or Not a childhood favourite. Um, it was one of the 39 steps was required reading at high school. It was one of the mm. books that you were required to read. And I managed to dodge most of them. <laughs> um, th- uh, or read a classics comics version and write an essay based <laughs> on that. I did that with... Um, uh, Treasure Island I wrote a character study of, of Long John Silver based entirely on reading the classics comics version of it and got an A for it well done but we wouldn't steps recommend was, that though kids no no don't read, read the proper books <clears throat> but I did read the 39 steps because it was very short and of course it's a really yeah. great read it, whatever age you are it's not, it's not a hard book no. to read and it was really good fun um, but that was only Buck and I'd read for years and years and years. My main memory of it was how the, the, the villains had locked him up in a cellar and conveniently left some explosives in there <laughs> that he could blow his way out with. <laughs> it is a lucky escape. It was kind of a, a bit of chance. Good luck plays its part in these things. Um, so it was many years later when my wife bought me a copy of Green Mantle, the second Buck and novel. Mm-hmm. Up till then, I'd not really thought about Buck and or realised there actually were more Richard Hanny novels. And then, of course, there's five of them. Yeah. And from there, we got into others and... and all the Hanny novels and the other series, the Hunting Tower series and the Lethan series and others that are like single books, but there's usually a character somewhere who links it mm, into yes. the, to the whole thing. So you've got a 20-odd book um, collection of the thrillers or shockers, which actually form a, a continuity of sorts. Yeah, there's a bucking world. There is. There's characters who meet each other and yeah. turn up other people's books. Sometimes it's only a, <clears throat> a minor thing, like um, like Edward Lethan turns up as somebody's lawyer in uh, the, the Prince of the Captivity, where otherwise he's got a lot of connection with it. And Archie Roylands turns up in all three series and others. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the most overlapping character. So it is actually a world where these characters all exist in the same world, and so they can meet each other in different combinations. So, uh, and that was to be an extra bit of fun for the thing that you, you actually weren't just reading a lot of individual novels they were actually weaving a world over a couple of decades from yeah. well, from before the First World War right up to 1940 when mm-hmm. the last novel is, is set Sickhart River um, so I, I really became came to love all, all of those books uh, as a whole 
uh, environment that you could just plunge into. Yeah. And then what possessed you to think, do you know what the world needs? Another bucking story. <laughs> yeah. Where does the audacity come from? <laughs> Who does he think he is? Um, well, when I'm reading Sick Heart River, the last bucking novel that was published after his death, he mm-hmm. was Governor General of Canada at that point, And he died after a, a falling in a riding accident. Um, but he had just signed Canada into World War Two, And he'd also just completed his last novel, Sick Heart River, an Edward Leithan novel. Mm-hmm. And towards the end of that book, Edward Leithan here of that novel is ref- is reflecting that he's he's in Canada at the time on a trekking through Canada, and he's reflecting if, that back home um, in Britain, all his pals and he names Archie Roylance and Hanny and a couple of other characters will actually all be out doing their part, having new adventures and doing because that's what they would do. And when I finished the book, um, and I, that that bit stuck in my mind, thinking, well, if Buchan, if Buchan lived a few more years, he would have written that that story, mm. because uh, the Thirteen Steps is written during World War One. Yeah. It, it's set just before it, leading up to it, but it's written while the war's actually raging. And uh, Green Mile Closer Stand Fast, I mean, just after the war, mm-hmm. they're very close to the events. So he would written uh, this a novel along these lines either during the war when, uh, or right after it with these characters that would, would have felt that they would have, he would have to do them justice by giving them that, that last adventure. So that I went from thinking, well, what a shame he didn't live <laughs> to write that book, yeah. to thinking, well, maybe somebody should write that story. Why has nobody <laughs> thought to do that yet? Like 80 years on, why has nobody thought yeah. to do that? To thinking, well, maybe I could do that. And I had the idea of what it would be because well, um, a lot of writers have been doing that, you know. There's the new, new James Bonds. There's yeah. new Poirots. So why not new Richard Hanny? Well, yeah. The difference is, as I understand from most of these, the publisher or the author, the dead author's estate goes to somebody and says, "We'd like to pay you this amount of money to write a new book for this." Yeah. Uh, and this is not always successful <laughs> because it's it's not the thing they just they. Which is sometimes I'm sure it Right, work. it's a matter of instinct, really, isn't yeah. it? In this case, this was so a matter. I had this idea that I yeah. thought for a long time was a fantasy in my mind. Wouldn't it be great if somebody would pay me money to write a Richard Hine novel? Because you know, I already had my career writing. Um, you know, for younger readers and yeah. other things I'm doing. Um, the time it would take to research this, to research the historical background to the fall of France, to to reread all the all the the, the relevant book and novels and and all that would take a long time, and writing the book would be um, hard work in the sense you were trying to make it mm-hmm. match up, uh, and I couldn't just do that on spec. I wasn't going to just say right, I'm going to just take a whole chunk of my life and write this book and hope that somebody will want it because that's all writers go to you you've written your book you think it's so wonderful and then nobody <laughs> wants it. I got a couple from years back like that but luckily I'm on a track now where people want books from me um, while I, I was writing my books for uh, my other publisher my article in Doyle series which is uh-huh. kind of in a sense, it, it's a weird coincidence to be doing these two things now because Absolutely, the article yeah. in Doyle series the, the idea for that uh, the first book of that, The Graders Club, I, I gave to them years ago. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, years later, when I was doing my Loki series, and suddenly out of the blue, I got an email saying, well, well, let's outline for this article and Doyle novel. We think it should be a series. We want you to do it. Oh, great. So I was contracted to do that. When the next thing happened, I was, I was writing that, when um, uh, Jamie was over visiting. Now, Jamie's now works at Berlin Polygon Publishers for the last couple of years, um, which is <coughs> nice, so we could talk a lot about books. Then. So he was home, and we were sitting at the back having a drink and a cigar, as we do, to discuss it's things. It's a tradition yeah, in this and family. He, he, writes, he <laughs> writes as well, so we're talking about things that we are writing and things we'd like to write. What would, what would we really like mm-hmm. to get the chance to write? Uh, 
I, I don't know. I, don't, I might not have mentioned this to him before. You know, you know, like John Buchan. But I may not mention this idea. I said, well, I, I would love to write this John Buchan all, but somebody would actually have to. I'd have to know somebody wanted it. I couldn't just do it on spec. I'd have to have a guarantee that publisher would be interested in looking at it. And he just said, Dad, don't you know that Berlin publish all of Buchan's novels? <laughs> like the Polygon editions and I saw yeah, I've got some of the editions they're really smart looking aren't they? I know you've yeah. got them in your bathroom yes exactly you see them up there <laughs> and uh, he said they'd probably be really interested in something like this I said okay well now I remember him coming into the office and yeah. he sort of quietly and subtly started putting the idea into our heads <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, I think he, and, then we were, and, then we, and then we were like well why doesn't he tell us a little bit more about this bucket book that he wants to Well, write? yeah, so he, I think the, the official word I got was when he passed on from Alison yeah. uh, at Berlin to say, yes, we'd really like to see a proposal for this. I thought, oh, great. So when I finished the first article in Dawn book, I was, I was contracted for two. So I took the time to, I threw myself into weeks of actually, from the idea, the idea of Richard Hanney is sent to rescue a prisoner from Paris before it falls to the Germans. That was mm. like a one sentence script. That was pretty much all I had at that point. And, and some notion of where the other characters fit in. But there wasn't a lot of detail to the plot. So I sort of worked out this very detailed plot um, to offer Berlin. So I did a, a six-page outline, you know, chapter by chapter, single-space breakdown, very detailed. I thought, okay, they're going to need to have a really good idea what it's going to be because I've not, I've not published a novel specifically for adults before. Mm -hmm. So they'll be a little sceptical about this because they're going to invest some money in it. So I want to make sure it's a good presentation. I, and I pitched it. I, I did like a presentation. How, here's why this would be so great and... And the blurb that I put, it's the one that's on the back of the book now, which yeah. I'm very pleased about, that they've not improved <laughs> on my pitch for what the book is about. Uh, and um, so I put that together, and uh, and it was, it was interesting working the plot out, how lots of ideas came. We're read, reading the book and stories, I would spot characters and things like, yeah, that's going to go in. I, I could take that and do that with it. And the story started to grow and take on a, 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 a dramatic level. I wouldn't give away too much about it, but it takes on a, a drama mm. because of things I found in original stories that I could use that, that would heighten the dramatic side of it um, to make it, yes, a thrilling, fun adventure story, but a bit more than that at the same time. I, I'd sent it off, and Alison had emailed me saying she'd be away for a few weeks to come back and see me like four weeks from now, on September the 1st. And I went over then... Um, to meet with them, or it was a buzz in the office. The, yeah. the outline was going around the office, and word was coming in. Because like, oh yeah, marketing—they really like it. They're, they're, it was like, probably, was, was pro you know, there was probably less argument about these these pitches than for many books I've seen. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I wasn't expecting it to move so quickly because mm -hmm. I, I thought that oh, they'll they'll they'll, they'll, they'll say, well, could you send us some text? And then months would go by. And they'd say, well, they'd quibble over it or something, you know. But no, we went. I was doing over the road for for some coffee. And um, got that went out, you know, and, and said how great it was, and um, then, then said, "Well, we're having a total meeting this afternoon, so I can't promise, but we'll probably make you an offer by the end of the day." <laughs> now, I, I've done quite a lot of books in the past, and nobody just makes you an offer by the end. Of the day. They just it drags <laughs> on and contract and, and things just, you know, it's months before they get back to you, not just a yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but no, and not to sell it just on the outline. Um, but they were obviously had enough of a track record, and the outline had grabbed everybody so much that everybody loved it so much the whole idea of it that um, by the end of the day yes I, I had got an email making me an offer and saying can you can you have it in for May so it can be for Christmas I of course said yes I can have it in <laughs> and I did I turned it in like the 4th of May I know well done um, so it was uh, <laughs> but it was, it was it was delightful it moved so quickly the enthusiasm everybody had for it was really encouraging to me well the one thing that really struck us uh, immediately was just the sheer joy and tribute and love for the work of Buck in itself which also reads in the 31 Kegs too it's great fun mm -hmm. and 
and it's a great tribute too. Yeah, well, in a sense for me, it wasn't so hard to write because I felt really inspired all the way through. I, mm-hmm. You know, ideas were coming in and, you know, yes, it was... Um, as a writer, you'd always have to polish and hone as, as, as you go, but if if the story's coming and the dialogue's flowing and the characters are coming to life, and it was exciting for me to do this, um, as it's in, it's nice now having met people who've read it who don't know me and you know <laughs> reviewers who've read it and have loved it to think yeah that's great people are reading this and they're getting the, the, that joy out of it that I had from writing it because for me to have these characters all come back to retirement come back to life and get to meet them again and for me to get to write their dialogue and 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 you know. Uh, have a new story with them all was it exciting for me of, of all the books I've written you know this is the one I pick up and keep reading but not because it's the newest one because it, it's like it's almost not not like my book it's like this is another new it's a new John Buchan novel yeah if John Buchan had written it it wouldn't be exactly like this I yeah mean, you know we don't write in exactly the same way but it's Buchan-esque enough and I now have the word of Buchan aficionados <laughs> to back this up that actually it reads really well and fits in really well with the, the whole world so um, it was that case where my enthusiasm for it, and you know, it wasn't somebody coming to me saying, "Kid, you know, could you write a buck and all of us? We think there's some money in it." No, it was yeah. just me having this as a fantasy, and it actually, it's still amazing to me to, to look at the book and see, you know, it out there and think, "Yeah, this was freak." a few years this is just a notion in the back of my mind that I never thought would happen and now it really is so anything's possible Was it immediately clear to you that Richard Hannay would be the one of the heroes of the Buchan novels just because he's the probably the one with the highest profile? I thought it was be Richard Hannay because of going from the third time because he'd been a, a hero in the war I mean the um, I say the, the the second and third Hannay novels take place during the, mm. the First World War in the, in, the, in the end of Mr Standfast he's actually with his troops holding the line against the Germans, there's an actual yeah. battle there. So all that that's there, and then he has two subsequent civilian adventures after that. The last one which is 1935. It, it, it seemed yes, bringing him that Hanny above all else would be the character who would, who would go back into action, as well as just bringing back Richard Hanny. I notion of doing something that John Buchan hadn't done that I wish he had done <laughs> was bringing back the characters from Hunting Tower, bringing back the Gorbals diehards. So were they your sort of favourite Buchan characters, and you you just knew that you wanted to weave yeah. them into your story? Well, Hunting Tower is, is my favourite Buchan novel. Like that's, right. that's a, every time I read it, it puts a big smile on my face. It, it, like, <laughs> Anybody who hasn't read Hunting Tower really doesn't know. Also published by Polygon in yes, a very spiffing it edition. No, it's it's a it's it's a joyous book. It's so fun. It's so exciting. The characters are terrific, and it's it's joyful. It's there's a joy of life in it and mm-hmm. adventure that is just splendid. Um, and just for people who don't, don't know it, it's about there's a retired Glasgow grocer called Dixon McCann who goes on a hiking tour in Galloway, mm-hmm. and eventually has to rescue a Russian princess who's been kept. <laughs> Captive in a derelict manor house there. It happens um, all the time. Yeah, it happens all the time. But he's helped by by these six scruffy kids from the Gorbals, the Gorbals diehards, these slum children, you know, who <laughs> these urchins who couldn't afford the uniforms you had to buy to join the Boy Scouts. So they formed their own little troop of the Gorbals diehards. They're out camping in the countryside there. <laughs> Gorbals diehards a better name yeah, as well yeah, than the Scouts. <laughs> And the thing is, in the first book, they behave like a military unit. They're, they're described mm. very much in those terms, how they're part in the whole thing. 
Now, in the subsequent two books of those series, um, Hunter Tower series, we only meet two of them, J.K. and Dougal, return as adults. But they've all, McCunn, the grocer, has taken them all under his wing. He's got them all in education and proper clothes and all that. And so they've all become, you know, professional people. So that J- J.K., well, he's at, he's at Cambridge studying at that point and playing rugby. And Dougal's become a journalist. And we find out what the others have done as well. But we never get the whole group back together again. And I was kind of disappointed that we only have got the two of them for the subsequent books. And I thought, I would, I would wish there was a book where they all of them back together. And I thought, well, they, it's a natural thing. You know, in, in, in the wars, you would get people from the same local area would join a regiment mm. or something. It would make sense that those guys would all come together as a, as a special kind of commando unit. It, and um, there's a logic to that. And I thought, it would be great. So I'd get... Two of them have emigrated by that time, <laughs> um, according to the, the books that we've got. One's gone to Australia, one's gone to Canada. At least four diehards um, still in, in, in Britain and Scotland. And um, so I, I find a way to bring them all together to be Hanny's team, his backup team, who go yeah. with him to France um, on his rescue mission. Uh, and I think that that's something people who... One of the interesting things I think about, I find it, is people don't know Buckingham that well who've read the book enjoy these characters anyway they, 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 yeah. they're mm-hmm. just great characters in their own right you, you don't, don't have, have to, to know yeah, you don't yeah. have to be aware of the whole world that Buchan has yeah. created and, um, and if you are a fan of these, these other books and you know these characters you get then it's you fun get, to see them yeah, back again yeah, the, ex- was for the, me. East, the easter eggs as they yes, call them yes, nowadays it's kind of like that yeah. so the, uh, a big thing with writing the book was not to write a book that's only for Buchan aficionados who can tick off all the references I, yeah. that I wanted to avoid that I didn't want to say everybody in the book's got to be in it no if it, if it was somebody from a Buchan novel who fitted in well into the story then I'd use them that'd be good to have them as a, as a kind of a bonus thing but not just to, to do as a to show how clever I am in picking all this up from Buchan the, 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 the Buchan roots of the book go very deep but it's, n- it's not like a crossword puzzle you're meant to solve it it's yeah. meant to be a, a story that lives in its own right I'm finding that people who don't know a lot of these characters from the original Buchan stories are really enjoying them and liking them in their own right and that's 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 good for me to think that that and um, if they then go off and read the Buchan stories, that's a bonus. I'd like them mm. to do that. I'd like people to, to read all the Richard Hanny books, um, including Island of Sheep, which tends to get very ignored. I quite like Island of Sheep. That's so, the last. <laughs> that's Hanny the last Hanny book in thirty-five. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it's this is like five years later. So he's just gone past sixty. In this. He's about my age. And, uh, I think. Well, okay. If I was a hunting, shooting, horse riding kind of chap like he is, I could do what he does in this book. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's not. That's not old now. And those days it wasn't either. If you'd lived yeah. that long, you were actually pretty tough. Yeah. So he, he's still vigorous enough to, to go out and have these kind of adventures. Um, and tramp the hills and don yeah, disguises. Exactly. He's tramping and, around it yeah. when the story starts off and, and, uh, and, does, and he does the things that there's the kind of um, um, kind of with fake stories and identities things yeah. which happens in the original books. So there's having that humour to it as well in the Absolutely. early part. That's there are some great disguises. Yeah. That's Don't give away any. <laughs> we'll say no more. Yes, there, there are... There are <laughs> This thing about it's nice to talk to people who've read it because beforehand there are a couple of twists and turns and surprises in the story that I didn't want to spoil for people. Yeah, and yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud of, very pleased with. I, I yes, think they, I know. they detonate. Because I mean, one of the best things that anything you're reading is to go, oh wow, I didn't see it yeah. coming, you know, or, yeah. or, or a, a revelation that you didn't see, but it makes perfect sense. Because that's the thing, the books as well as being a tribute to Buckin is they're just some really great ripping yarn mm-hmm. you know from the minute from the opening chapter it's edge of the seat stuff 
yes. cliffhangers in every chapter. It's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. What, what, but in a total meeting, somebody, in fact, said, do we want to have these sort of cliffhanger in every chapter? And somebody else said, yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I like that, because in a sense, writing for younger readers, I kind of, it doesn't mean you're writing down to them. Mm-hmm. You're trying to write a good story. And in my younger readers, especially the, the Conan Doyle series I'm doing, I do try and give a nice cultural sense of the kind of the poetry, the books they're reading, the kind of environment they're in, mm. so they're not just getting references to things like that you get in modern books. You're telling kids, yeah, there's a culture there that these kids are yeah. enjoying, and you can you can get those books and read them and find out about all these things that are going on in their lives. Um, so you, having all that that richness to it and richness of character doesn't mean you can't make it a really exciting thrill ride I at know, the same time. Yeah. So, and that's uh, what makes the book addictive. You, you, I think so, yeah. It's, you it's just have to go on to the next chapter. I saw a slight complaint <laughs> that it was too short, because we're like... Mm. You know, <laughs> well, it's it interesting. rockets along. A lot of critics or people who are asked to contribute a blurb will say something like, I read this in an afternoon, it was so good. Yes, yes. <laughs> but a, I really did read this in an afternoon, and it was great. <laughs> yeah, well, the book's really grabbing you like that. Yeah. And um, one of the things that's interesting about uh, Richard Hannay himself maybe a slightly older version of Richard Hannay um, he is he does have a sort of literary frame of reference in yes. this book it's Pilgrim's Progress yes that seems to be a sort of touchstone for him throughout the narrative yeah well Pilgrim's Progress is referenced quite strongly in Mr. Standfast mm-hmm. one of the earlier Hannay adventures um, and the name Mr. Standfast is actually a character in Pilgrim's Progress ah, okay. and so I was plotting this out um, at the end of that book he inherits a copy of it from his friend who's killed uh, who's uh, in, in that book um, and I thought well uh, on the series I'd say it's a, th- it's a thriller and it's a fun thriller but at the same time there's a, there's a serious aspect mm. to the story I think, I think if you if you read a thriller and you get to the end of it and you don't take more out of it than that you still feel a bit cheated it's like you've eaten crisps I know whereas <laughs> I think a, good, a really good gripping book at the end of it you can still come with something more than that which is what I tried to do yeah I think you've you've, you've created a really rich world particularly the Parisian section mm. that you've really um, captured the the atmosphere of what it must have been like in those last days in Paris before the Germans arrived that was it it was, it was a great setting yeah. that, that was my basic years ago that was my notion that Hani would have to get to Paris in the hours before the Germans enter the city because it's been declared an open city it's going mm. to be surrendered to the Germans um, and it's the ultimate ticking clock yeah you know I mean by the time he gets there in the book he's got 24 hours actually a bit less mm. before the German tanks start rolling down the Champs-Élysées and he's got to find this person he's there to rescue and get them out and all that and um so it, it, it was a great background. And, of course, that, the, the kind of doomed apocalyptic setting of, of Paris just waiting for this to have, for the hammer to fall and how different people react to it, how we do meet some French troops fortifying a chateau outside Paris who are going to fight to the death. They're mm. not going to surrender. People and in the who city will go who, on to be in the resistance. And, yes, yeah. and then the people in the city who reconcile themselves to it. It's just business as usual, just yeah. new guys running it. You know, there's all the different ways people deal with it all. The pragmatic taxi driver he meets in Paris... Um, you know that that um, and it's a it, it, it's a very powerful background for for the story. This this is going on, um, and of course in in Britain, uh, the the collapse of France is a, a huge shock. Yeah, we reduced its history to us now. At the time, people didn't think that was going to happen. They thought the French had got this fabulous army in the Maginot Line. They've been preparing for this for mm. years. They're ready for it, and they they were outmaneuvered and just crumbled. Mm-hmm. and had to make a terrible decision whether they would fight on and thousands and thousands of people would be killed and Paris would be flattened or do you, do you just hold your, your hand up. Hold your hand up and say, yeah. no, stop, we'll try and salvage what we can and hopefully at the end of it all. 
World War Two, even now, is still like like the Trojan War was to the Greeks that created mm. epics and stories. Mm. Yeah. World War Two is still, as you see with um, Dunkirk coming out now, is still the, the source of huge stories, factual and fictional and all the rest of it. So that um, uh, so this this part of it is is a bit that's. It's, this is like a, a moment, the fall of, of Paris, that's not really paid much attention to. Mm-hmm. And yet made a, 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 so it was something new to do in that period and makes a tremendous background. And so the, some of the references from um, Pilgrim's Progress, which refer very well to this notion of a sort of coming destruction mm-hmm. and how can we survive it. And part of that is, is also the, the, the last book um, that Buchan wrote. It's a very spiritual book. It's one of, it's one of my favourite Buchan novels, and it's a, it's a very deeply spiritual religious book. It felt to me very true to Buchan to kind of carry that element through into this book, to have that as part of it. Um, you know, and I, I said The Pilgrim's Progress is one way to, to have to reference that through mm-hmm. the story, but um, and it, you know, it goes with Buchan's worldview, Harry's worldview, and it gives the, the story a bit more than just a romp. It makes it mm-hmm. more to than that. Yeah. And I say it's like anything that, that you think, that, that bit extra leaves you with something at the end of it so you mm. don't just thought oh that's well, fine where's the next exciting book I can read you think if it's not read? if it's not going to be too spoilerish I really love the way that this book reflects back on Green Mantle yes and I think mm. Green Mantle because of its eastern setting and its orientalism mm. is an, a book that doesn't translate so well into True. reading in the 21st century mm. but what you do in this book is point to the complexity of the final scenes of yes. Green Mantle. <laughs> and I how mean, they <laughs> carry on uh, Repro- pers- yeah. the characters have not escaped from this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 there's there's a sort of reflection back. Like this yeah. is uh Richard Hannay and um his crew yes. reflecting back on their lives and Well interestingly one of the things it's interesting when because when you're writing a book, you're not going to reflect on everything as you're writing it. You're writing a lot on instinct and mm. the feel of the thing. But um, when Stuart Kelly was introducing uh, my session about the book at the Wilton Book Festival, that was a preview, it wasn't really out then officially, um, he, did, he, he talked about it very, very flatteringly when introducing it and said that one of the things about it was that usually people do this kind of a book, read characters. By the end of the book, things are back to the way they were at the start. Nothing's really uh, changed. Yeah. He said, by the end of this book, it's changed. Yes. Harry and his friends, their world's not the same anymore. Yeah. They're not the same anymore. And yeah, that's true. I, I thought about it in that way, but yeah, that that's it. I mean, that's part of why it, it, it's good. It's not. I wasn't scared to do something with it like that because I felt that was the way it needed to go. The the way the characters, mm. the, the, the direction of things. The final chapter is called the final beginning. Does this leave the door open for future Richard Hannay adventures? Well. <laughs> <laughs> That was the end of episode 10. Yeah. And thank you very much for listening to us scramble through the daring do world of John Buchan. Um, thank you to Robert G. Harris for his interview. And his wonderful, wonderful book. Cannot and recommend it enough. Absolutely. It's the perfect Christmas present. <laughs> Next time will be our last podcast of 2017. Now, you may have heard something in the air recently about the centenary celebrations of Muriel Spark. And 
If so, that's great. And if not, get on it. And we're delighted that Polygon are the publisher of the centenary editions, which form the centrepiece of the, this, the year-long celebrations of Muriel Spark that are coming from from November onwards. Next episode, we will be talking Muriel Sparks' first novel, yes. Comforters. Yes. <laughs> and we will also be talking to Polygon author and literary journalist Alan Taylor about his memoir of Muriel Spark, Appointment in Arezzo. Yes. A friendship with Muriel Spark. Yes, Alan Taylor was a great friend to Muriel and he's also the series editor of our 22 Centenary Spark editions. So he will be talking to us all about Spark and her wonderful, wonderful novels. Join us then. See ya!